in case you haven't noticed, Peter really cares how Christians act. Maybe act is the wrong word, how Christians behave. Peter spent the first part of his letter making sure that we really understand all that God has done for us in Christ and the great hope that God's people have set before them. And then, at a, from a significant turning point early on in Peter, from then on, Peter spent the main chunk of his letter helping us understand how we are to live and act and behave in response to that hope and in response to that, that gospel truth. A key issue that Peter's readers were facing was hostility from the surrounding culture, their faith in Jesus. This is right in the background of, of the whole letter. We, we heard from the very beginning of the letter that these, these Christians were elect exiles, strangers, foreigners, like landed immigrants. Up in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter wrote, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, and there that, that phrase means just the unbelieving world, Honorable, Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, it's going to happen, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And, and then beginning in, in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter began to break down what honorable conduct looks like for various groups of people. What does it look like to live honorably in a, in a hostile and unbelieving world? And he started by talking about how we respond with, to the government. He taught slaves how to interact with masters, particularly hard, not good ones. There's a lot of Christians who were slaves in the first century, and they had to figure out how this works. And, and he taught wives how to interact with unbelieving husbands, and so along the way, we've seen a lot about how honorable conduct in, involves interacting with and, and behaving in response to a hostile, unbelieving world. We've also seen that honorable conduct includes how we respond and treat each other. Chapter 2, verse 15 talked about loving the brotherhood. Chapter 3, verse 7 talked about husbands loving their wives in a way that assumed their wives were, were believers. Today we arrive at a passage that in many ways wraps up this whole section that started up in chapter 2, verse 12, 13. After, after talking to a number of different individual groups, Peter says here in verse 8, Finally, all of you. So in case you, if you've had a little bit of what about me over the past few weeks, well, what if I don't fit in these different categories? Here we go. Finally, all of you. This is for all of us. Whether you're in one of these groups or not, if you're a part of God's people, this is for you. And in this section, we see a summary, and we're going to see these two th main directions we've just talked about, how we're to interact with each other, how God's people are to, to treat and behave with each other, and then, and then how we're to interact with an unbelieving world, particularly those who are treating us really badly because of our faith in Jesus. So let's start with the first swath living with one another. Uh, just minor acknowledgement, if you're following along on your outline, there's no study guide on the back, and that's going to be, um, small group leaders, that's going to be coming to you. It's going to be on the website by tomorrow. Let's start with verse 8, living with one another. 
as a chosen race, a holy nation, what does honorable conduct look like with one another? Peter lists five characteristics, five ways of describing what honorable conduct looked like. And, and one of the things that we've seen Peter do often is Peter piles up language and, and, and he'll give two or three, sometimes more, words that are all generally talking about the same kind of thing. And that's, that's most likely what's happening here. We're going to see that these five words that he uses are not five completely distinct ideas. But they overlap. They explain each other. They, they fit together as a beautiful picture of, of how we're to live with one another as God's people. The first thing we're called to here is unity of mind. Finally, all of you have unity of mind or be like-minded. This specific phrase, unity of mind or like-minded, this is the only time that we see this word in the New Testament. The idea is found many other places. First uh, Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. Or Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Christians are called a like-mindedness. Like-mindedness is something that is not that hard to look for if you know where to look. We see lots of examples of it in the world where cultures group around shared interests. They develop similar ways of thinking. Clubs form of people who are interested in the same kind of thing. The like-mindedness that we're to have as God's people comes from our minds being renewed by the Holy Spirit as we share the mind of Christ together. That's something we see in in, in Philippians 2. This like-mindedness isn't just a command to think like the other people. It's a command to set our minds on Christ. And as we do that together, we find ourselves being united in mind. I'm encouraged as I think about the people in this room, how different we are from each other in so many ways. How differently we think about many different issues. And yet the unity that we experience as we seek to put Jesus first and seek his kingdom above all. And that's what Peter calls us to, a Christ-focused unity of mind. The second characteristic is sympathy. Thomas Schreiner defines sympathy here as caring deeply about the needs, joys, and sorrows of others. Caring deeply. Once again, this this word that Peter uses here is the only time it's used in the New Testament, but the, the concept, the idea, is found other places. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. If one member suffers all suffer together, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Isn't this just the opposite of the individualism that that pervades so much of, of our Western world these days? If someone else is suffering, that's their problem, not my problem, right? They got themselves into that mess. They can deal with it. Common ideas... 
But sympathy means that when someone else is suffering, that matters to us because they matter to us. We care, and we don't just care. (laughs) Care is one of those words like love. We've been talking about this in our adult Sunday school class. When people say, I love my church, often they mean like they really like it, not I sacrifice myself for the members of my church, like love, right? Similarly, when we say care, we often say we, when we say I care about you, or I really care, we often mean that we have a feeling of concern as opposed to, I'm actually taking care of you. Sympathy leads to care because we don't just feel something. We want to help them because we're we're members of the body together and we feel deeply and we care, not just in terms of emotions, but emotions emotions that lead to behavior. Third term is brotherly love. This is not the first time we've seen this word, even in 1 Peter. Up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, told us to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. Brotherly love, the love that members of a family have for each other. We are to love each other as God's people as if we were members of a family Because we are. We are. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been born again to a living hope. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, it's unavoidable that we're always going to be more familiar with some people than another. I'm more familiar with my sisters because I grew up in the same home as them. I'm more familiar with them than I am with with most of you. and I'm more familiar with my wife and children than I am with with most of you, and I, we have more immediate obligations to our immediate family. We see that in the scripture. We're to, husbands and fathers are to provide for their families, and, and so that there are immediate obligations that we have. There are priorities we have, but in terms of love, we're called to love one another as if we were part of the same family because we actually are. Fourth phrase here is a tender heart. There's another way we could translate this word, or this, this phrase, which is compassion. It's interesting, the, the word comes from the word for guts, literally, your intestines, which the ancient world understood as the seat of our emotion. And, and we still talk about that sometimes, right? Oh, my guts were churning. When we feel nervous, our, our guts do stuff. Maybe it shouldn't be all that strange. And so this word is associated with feeling. And interestingly, in the ancient world, it's associated with family. You're supposed to have this gut-felt compassion for the members of, of your own family. And Peter's telling us to have that for each other. Is it interesting that the Bible commands us to feel things? It's possible to overdo the feelings piece, okay? In in the Western world here, we've talked about this before, of how feelings are often more important than the truth, but that's not to say feelings don't matter at all. Here, we're, we're commanded to feel for one another, to really feel. So this is a call away from hypocrisy, right? That we would just, like, do something to put on a show. No, we're to actually feel care and compassion 
tender actions are to flow from tender hearts. Fifthly, finally, we're called to be humble-minded, to have humility. This word for humility here is connected to the idea of being low, lowly, having, having a humble mind, being lowly-minded. And what's interesting is in the ancient world, in, in Peter's context, this wasn't a good thing. Pride was a virtue. Humility was a weakness. You didn't want to be humble. You wanted to show that you were on top, that you were better than other people. And, and I think we see that more and more in our culture. The, the more our culture gets away from its, its biblical moorings, people say, I'm proud of what I did. And no one goes, are you sure you should talk that way? I mean, it's just more normal. But in the ancient world, it was very normal. Pride was a virtue. Humility was a weakness. And Peter says, be humble. Have a humble mind towards one another lowliness in our thinking. This, this idea of lowliness is just a helpful way of thinking about, about what humility is. And it helps us map on to, to the ultimate example of this. Jesus said he, that he is gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. Just hear the downward descent here. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even even death on a cross. The downward journey of humility. Again, not just in attitude, but in actions. And many times in the New Testament, we are called to a similar lowliness or humility. Philippians 2, 3, before this part, that, that was Philippians 2, 6 to 8, by the way, that I just read. And just a few verses before, we're told, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. This is a helpful question. Do you see other people as above you, or do you see yourself as being above other people? The world cheers those who raise themselves above everyone else. We talk about the rising stars. Humility means knowing that God alone is lifted high and and we're okay to be low. So, brothers and sisters, here is yet another call for how we're to live with one another. We see as these four words overlap with one another, they're calling us to a sincere, heartfelt or gut-felt Others focused family love. And again, in our, in our adult Sunday school class, we've been looking at some of the ways that that actually works its way out on a Sunday morning, for example. Actually going and talking to other people, asking how you can pray for them, and actually showing practical care. But it starts in the heart. And Peter's calling us, calling us to love one another well. And we're going to come back to this. We're not finished with this. And we're going to come back even just at the end of, of today's message. In verse 9, Peter makes a transition that you can almost miss because it just flows from verse 8 into verse 9. But he makes a transition in verse 9 to talk about how we are to live with the unbelieving world. And what we're going to see here is not necessarily anything brand new. If you've been with us for our, our study in First Peter, 
Back when Peter talked about masters and slaves, he went into depth explaining how slaves should expect to be treated poorly. And this didn't mean they're doing anything wrong because they were called to this as they followed Jesus's example. Jesus, who suffered unjustly in his most, most particularly in his trial and his crucifixion, his death, we're called to follow that example. And what Peter does here in verse 9 is he opens that up to all of us. So if you remember that, that, that sermon that, that Jordan gave called Suffering Servants on that passage up in chapter 2, if, if, if there's any part of you that thought, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a slave, I don't have to worry about that. Well, here, here in verse 9, we're called to embrace this heart, this attitude, to enter into this experience. All of us who follow the Lord should expect this. Verse 9 assumes that we're going to receive evil treatment. Because it says, don't repay evil for evil. Well, that just assumes we're going to get evil treatment. And it says, or reviling for reviling. That word reviling is not a word we use a lot, but it speaks about insults or, or abusive speech, like, like verbal abuse or harsh language. When you get this, because you will, don't hurl it back. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Isn't this just a normal human thing to do? I mean, you see it from, from a young age. You throw sand at me, I'll throw sand at you. And as we get older, we just have more sophisticated ways of doing that. You ignore me, I'll ignore you. You unfriend me, I'll unfriend you. You gossip about me, I'll gossip about you. And we, 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 we people treat us bad and we just turn it back, back at you. God's word consistently calls us away from this. Proverbs twenty twenty two. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. And Jesus taught us in Matthew five thirty nine. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And Jesus didn't just say that. Jesus, Jesus lived it perfectly like we've seen already, right up in chapter 223. When he was reviled, there's that word, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. It's just incredible to imagine and to think of Jesus with all of the power that he had, taking everything that he had and to not respond. I think of some of you won't get this reference, but in the movie Man of Steel, the Superman character is working in a, in a little restaurant in a truck stop, and he's just getting trash-talked by these guys. I mean, it's, it's a Superman. Like, he can do anything. And when, when one of the guys goes out later on, he sees his semi-truck impaled on a, on a light pole, and, and it's sort of the sense of justice. Like, okay, you know, we expect Clark Kent to kind of keep it quiet for a few minutes, but no one's going to... You know, no one's going to fault him for, you know, taking a coffee break and going and trashing the guy's semi-truck. And yet you look at Jesus with infinitely more power all the way to the point of death. This is supernatural. And Jesus didn't just stop there. He didn't just stop there. He actually prayed for those who were killing him suffocating on the cross for people's sins. I just want you to think, when you think of the words of Christ from the cross, every word meant him pushing himself up 
on a nail through his feet or his ankles so he could just catch a breath. The main way of dying on a cross was suffocation. Every word you hear is him pushing himself up on a nail to gasp something out. And from the cross, we hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's praying for them, praying that God will forgive the people that are crucifying him. And Peter calls us to follow in Christ's footsteps even this far. Halfway through verse 9, but on the contrary, bless Instead of just staying tight-lipped and taking the trash talk, we're supposed to respond with blessing instead of cursing. Looking at how this word blessing is used and practiced throughout Scripture, I agree again with Thomas Schreiner who said, quote, by blessing, Peter means that believers are to ask God to show his favor and grace to those, upon those who have conferred injury upon them. So people are injuring us with words or with hands or with sticks and stones. And in response, we ask God to show his favor and grace to them. Isn't that what Jesus is doing there on the cross? He's blessing them. He says, Father, forgive them. This is what Jesus, again, told us to do. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Luke 6, 27 to 28. It's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus taught. And it's what God's people have been empowered to do over and over again. If you think that's impossible, that's just, I, I can't ever do that. Well, Acts 7, 59 to 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, so big rocks crushing him to death, baseball-sized, maybe bigger, maybe smaller, pummeled to death. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So these are his last words. So just imagine how, is, is there blood coming out of his mouth or his teeth missing? Is his jaw broken? Like th- this is a gruesome scene. And his last words are, Lord, forgive them for what they're doing. Don't hold this against them. The same Holy Spirit that empowered him to do this did the same for Paul. Paul was bragging on God, not himself, when he said, 1 Corinthians 4.12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. And if you read Christian history or Christian biography or missionary biographies, you see this kind of thing just just over and over again throughout history of, of God's people being supernaturally enabled to love the people who are hurting them, often literally, to bless those who are cursing them. This is not impossible. This is what God's people are called to do. This is what God's people are enabled to do by the Holy Spirit. So, instead of blessing, sorry, instead of cursing, we are to bless. Now there's there's three points that we want to walk through here as Peter fleshes out this command. And the first is because we're to do this because this is what we were called to. And here's, here's part of what's going on here. One of the ways that God helps us to obey this command, to bless those who curse us, 
is by motivating us through his word. And that, that's what he's doing here. Still here in verse 9, God, through Peter, motivates us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us by telling us, first of all, this is what we were called to. Bless instead of curse because this is what you were called to. Bless for to this you were called, says verse 9. The word call is just such a, a, a beautiful word. It, it's a way of describing the sovereign work of God in our salvation. Kings call their subjects and their subjects respond. Like a king, God summons us to himself and we respond and we answer. I mean, just think, think of the way we use, we use the word call and and if we were to use that in a human level, if I was to say to one of you, I've called you to this, you'd be like, who are you? Like, what are you talking about, man? But, but the fact that we talk about this with God, it reflects his sovereign kingly power and that he calls us. And, and primarily we see all throughout the New Testament the idea of God calling us to salvation. First Peter 2.9 showed us this. God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you believe in Jesus today, it's because at one point you were in darkness and God called you. That's what happened. He called you and you answered. And if you say, well, actually, I thought I was seeking him, I'd point you to that beautiful quote in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair where, where Aslan says, you wouldn't have called me if I hadn't been calling you first. And again, that's not just from C.S. Lewis, that's from Jesus and Gospel of John and all over the place. If you believe in Jesus, it's because you were called out of darkness and into light. But here's the thing. The call that God issues to us, that, that we just we can't help but respond to it and come to him in faith, that call is not just a call to believe. It includes, for example, a call to be holy. We saw that up in chapter 1, verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God's call, when he calls us to himself, is also a call to suffer. Like we saw in verse chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. So he's talking there about suffering. So it's just, here's how we, I don't think we should think about this as there's all these separate callings. There's a calling to salvation. There's a calling to be holy. There's a calling to suffer. But rather, what we need to see here is God calls us, and here's what he calls us to. He calls us to himself to believe in Jesus. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to suffer. And what we see here today is that when God calls us to himself, he calls us to bless instead of curse. To do good to those who treat us evilly. And so what, we, what, we, what we're seeing here is that this call, instead of treating people bad when they treat us bad, but the call to bless instead of curse is not some like extra optional thing that some super spiritual Christians in a missionary biography can do. This is what God called you to when God called you to himself is to bless those who curse us. This isn't an, an optional extra or like, you know, like the add-on package for the Christian life. No, this is right at the core. That's not all. There's a goal here. God has called us to bless those who curse us for a purpose, and that's in point B here, that we would obtain a blessing in order that we would obtain a blessing. Just think about this. 
God wants us to obtain a blessing. And obtaining that blessing depends on us blessing others. That, that's, that's, that's what it says here. That's the sense of the grammar here in verse 9. On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that, so that you, might obt- you may obtain a blessing. Now, this word obtain here, I don't think that's the best way of translating that word. I think the NIV is actually better here when it uses the word inherit because this is the same basic word that Peter used up in chapter 1, verse 4, which talked about an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. And so, knowing that connection, inherit, inheritance, that tips us off to, to, to this blessing that Peter's talking about. What, we've been... We've been to obtain a blessing, like what is that? What's the blessing? Well, if we understand that this is our inheritance, all of a sudden this gets really big. Peter's not just talking about, you know, the blessing in terms of, you know, having a nice day, going, oh, I feel so blessed. I bless those who curse me, and as a result, I just, I feel so blessed. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your inheritance, your heavenly inheritance. We're going to see that much more clearly in verse 10. So just wait a second. Just, just, whoa, 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 whoa. Things just got real. I'll be honest to you. After the intensity of the last two sermons, I thought, as I looked at this passage, okay, this, this will be just a little bit less intense this Sunday. And then I got into it and I'm like, whoa, Peter says that us blessing those who curse us is connected to whether we're going to inherit eternal life or not. That's intense. That's what he's saying. The blessing of our internal, eternal inheritance is connected to and even dependent on us blessing others when we, were treat, when we are treated poorly. Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I'm going to say it another way just to try to help our head, heads get wrapped around it. God has called us to bless others in order that we might receive our heavenly inheritance. Does that sound like earning heaven by your good works? Like I thought we were in a Christian church. If it feels that way to you, consider a few things. First, where does this whole thing start? It starts with God's calling. To this you were called. We didn't call God to this. We didn't say, uh, I got a plan. I'm going to bless those who curse me so that you give me eternal life. Okay, that's like works righteousness. That's, that's, that's not this. This is God's idea. God called us to this by his own purpose and grace. He caused us to be born again to a heavenly inheritance, chapter 1. Second, we got to remember that our ability to do what pleases God is a gift that Jesus bought and paid for on the cross. So if you can bless those who curse you, that is something Jesus bought on the cross. We've talked about this in 1 Peter. He bought our obedience. Think about 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So if you're hearing this command this morning, bless those who curse you, and you're thinking, I want to do that, and you can do it, that's a blood-bought gospel gift that Jesus obtained when he suffered in your place on the cross. 
So just think about this. This is not about us bringing our good deeds to God saying, here's my best. Can, I, can you let me into heaven? No. God called us, which is a gift, to inherit a blessing. That, the blessing of eternal life is a gift. And he calls us to do that by living in the way that he tells us, which, by the way, the fact that he tells us that is a gift, and which he enables us to do, which is a gift. Here's just a, a way we can make it really simple. If you've been saved by grace through faith, you will be able to hear this command and obey it. And your ability to hear, desire, and obey is something Jesus has bought for you on the cross. And so as we hear these commands, as we hear that we are to bless in order that we might obtain a blessing, the part that we play is it's very much like the lame man when Jesus says, get up and walk. The lame man hears his command, get up and walk. And he obeys that command. He gets up and he walks. But can you imagine him meeting someone later on that afternoon and saying, what happened? It's like, well, he told me to get up and walk and I did. I'm walking by my own power, like as if, as if the fact that he can obey is a miracle and a gift of grace. And so we we gotta see it this way, that yes, we have a part to play in obeying Jesus after he has saved us, but our very ability to do that is a gift of grace. And so when we get to heaven someday, we're not going to say, here I am, look at all the good works that I did. We're going to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. One more simple way of putting it, if there's any confusion still, our obedience to this command proves that we have been saved by grace through faith. Point C here. As the scriptures say, this should not surprise us that what Peter's going to do is he's he's making a pretty big point here and he proves it from the Hebrew scriptures. That's what he's been doing all along. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. This particular quote here in verses 10 to 12 comes from Psalm 34. He's actually quoted or alluded to Psalm 34 at least twice already. And here he comes back at it again. We want to take just an extra couple of moment, moments here to, to see what's going on with Psalm 34. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 34. Just uh, open your Bible towards the middle and flip back a little bit and get to Psalm 34. And it's, it's very interesting to see why this psalm was going through Peter's mind as he was writing this. Why the Lord directed him to this psalm. The title is important, Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So the background to there is 1 Samuel 21. And we're not going to turn there. I mean, we could. We're not going to do that. If you want to write that down, Abimelech is just a, a title or a different name for Achish, the Philistine king of Gath. Does Gath sound familiar? That's where Goliath was from. Now, David is on the run from Saul, and he's got to leave the land of Israel, which makes him what? An exile. 
David goes into exile in the, in, in the land of the Philistines. He goes to Gath hoping he'll be safe and someone recognizes him. This is the dude that killed our champion. And so what we see in First, in first Samuel 21 is, is David puts on a bit of a show. He acts like he's nuts. He lets his drool dribble down his, his beard. And, and, and Achish says, I've got enough madmen around here. Get out of here. And so David makes it. Psalm 34 shows us what was going on in here. Is the whole time David's going, help, Lord, please save me. And he's crying out for salvation. And, and, and the fact that his plan worked was because God saved him. And so we see that, verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. So this part of this psalm is, is, is being written to help encourage God's people to celebrate the fact that he saves, he saves his people. He saves his people from danger, even danger in exile. But as the psalm goes on, this is what's really important here. Psalm 34 goes on. David wants his readers to know that God is not a vending machine. You don't put in the quarter, press the button, and get your salvation. There is a certain person who will be saved. Verse 8 to 10. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is who? The man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for who have no lack? Those who fear him. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but who lack no good thing? Those who seek the Lord. You see what David's doing here? Who are the people who will receive God's salvation? Those who take refuge in him, those who fear him, those who seek him. And so then in verse 11, David does like a huddle up where he says to the, to the young people, here, I want to teach you how to do this. I want to teach you how to fear the Lord so that you can enjoy his salvation. Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. So if you're, if you're a, a child here in this room, take this literally. Come, listen. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I mean, kind of all of us, right? Here's what you need to do. If you want to enjoy long life and many days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And and it goes on, and there's so much more there. But do you hear what, what, what David's saying? God saves, but who does he save? He saves the righteous. If you want to enjoy the blessing of God's salvation, there's a standard he calls you to. Meanwhile, if you are evil, don't expect the blessing of salvation. Expect judgment. Now back to Peter. Do you see the parallels? David is in exile, like Peter's readers. Strange land, hostile environment. Like David, we're seeking protection from the Lord. And from David, we need to learn the lesson that it is the righteous who will experience the Lord's salvation and blessings. And you might think, man, that sounds like an awfully Old Testament reality. But this is what Peter's teaching us. This is what it says. Now, 
When David wrote about life and many days, he's probably thinking about living till an old age in the promised land. When Peter quotes this back, so back in 1 Peter 3, when Peter quotes this in verse 10 and says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, he's almost certainly speaking about the new covenant blessings of eternal life, resurrection, new creation. But the principle remains the same. God will rescue and save the righteous. So, looking at verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse 10 to 12 and just kind of interject some of the things that we've been been hearing here. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, even when others speak evil against you. And his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil, even when people do evil to you. And do good, even to those who do evil to you. Let him seek peace and pursue it, even with your enemies. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. This is why Peter told husbands to really be careful how they live with their wives. God listens to the prayer of the righteous. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, even if they call themselves Christians and are embedded in the Christian community, and even if, they're being, even if they're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Think about what this is saying. Even if someone is so outspoken about their faith in Jesus that they're getting persecuted, if they respond to that persecution with evil speech and evil behavior, they are proving that they're not actually among God's saved people who will receive his final gift of eternal life. I would say, I would add to that, they're proving that they were never truly born again. Here's a pretty major implication of this. Like like I said, I did not expect this to be an intense passage, but here's a pretty major implication. Being persecuted for your faith in Jesus is not in and of itself a badge of honor. This is, this kind of just slapped me across the face some point yesterday afternoon. That's a pretty big assumption we tend to have, especially here in the Western world. Persecuted Christians are the real Christians. And if we here in the West do anything that brings the government down on us, we must be doing something right. And according to Peter, being persecuted for, for being outspoken about Jesus, that doesn't prove everything. It's how you respond to that treatment. It's how you respond when you're persecuted that proves who you really are, whether you are a part of God's redeemed people or not. Those with God's help and strength who respond with blessing to curse, they're the ones that can have confidence, I have been saved by the Lord, by his grace, and I'm looking forward to the blessing of eternal life. And so... That is Peter's instruction for all of us here in verses 8 to 12. We've heard how to live with one another. If you remember that, we've had some big ideas that have come up since then. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And we've heard how we're to live among those who persecute us by blessing them. Really, though, these are all talking about the same kind of thing, right? It's talking about love. And what it looks like with our brothers and sisters in Christ and what it looks like with 
the unbelieving world. It's, 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 it's love. I used to roll my eyes when preachers would talk about love because I thought, ah, oh, let's get to the good stuff. Love is the good stuff. This is what we've been called to do. As we heard this morning in Sunday school, love is just the basic ground level of Christian obedience. This whole matter of how we respond to those who, who are being hostile to us for our faith in Jesus, Peter's not done talking about it. This is in many ways, in many ways, this is the central issue of his letter. In many ways, this is why he wrote these people. And he's going to be talking about this, how to respond to a hostile world, all the way to the end of chapter 4. So through the rest of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4. So we got about seven or eight weeks left in our series in First Peter, and, and many of those weeks we will be considering these truths. But today, as we wrap up these verses and, and, and bring them all together, I want to encourage us to not just think good ideas. I want to encourage us to, to, to make this really personal and really practical. Is there any place in your life where you have been resisting unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there anyone in your life that you need to ask God to give you sympathy for or brotherly love for or to give you a tender heart for? There are people, isn't it true, there are some people it's easier to do that because because we can do it in our own strength. Some people are just lovable. But the, the measure of whether this is supernatural Holy Spirit love is, are, are you giving it to the people that are hard to love? Do you feel sympathy for the person who's hard to feel sympathy for? Are there areas in your life where you've had a haughty mind and you need to ask the Lord to give you humility? Are there parts in your life that are kind of off limits to this stuff. This brotherly love stuff is for over there, but these parts of my life are, are off limits. I'll go first and confess to you that some things that won't surprise those of you who know me or have spent time with me, by personality, I'm a very competitive person. If I'm playing a game, I really want to win. If I'm in a competition, I want to win. And if there isn't a competition that I can win, I'll invent one so that I can win. And over the years, my wonderful wife has been a, a godly influence on me in helping me grow in my understanding that caring for other people is more important than beating other people. You think, obviously, right? In other words, sympathy and brotherly love and tenderheartedness and humble-mindedness are more important than winning and being the best. And so are there areas in your life, maybe it's a desire to win or a desire to be right or a desire to call the shots or a desire to do your own thing. And, and in those areas, you, you sort of think this brotherly love, sympathy, compassion, it, you don't let it in. If the Lord helps you think of any areas like that, don't, don't, don't despair. Receive that as a gift. If the Lord helps us realize someplace that we need to let him in, that, that's, that's a sign of his love. Repent of your sin. Look to your Savior who died for that. That little corner of your heart that you're trying to keep the Lord out of and the sin of trying to do that, Jesus died for that. You're forgiven. 
You will be if you come to him and confess. So do that and pray, pray for the Lord to break into every corner of your heart and that this love we're called to would not just be out there as an idea. Can you think of anyone that's treated you poorly because of your faith in Jesus? Anyone that's dished evil or reviling at you? How have you responded? Is there anyone, here think about this, is there anyone in your life who has treated you badly, particularly for your faith in Jesus, that you need to deliberately pray blessing for them? And I mean deliberately. Folks, let's not just take this and be like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. You know what a great thing to do would be to write that person's name down and stick it on your dashboard or as a note on your phone and actually deliberately pray, God, could you bless that person with you? Would you help them to repent? Would you give them eternal life? Would you help them to be forgiven? And then look for ways to show kindness to that person. One final thought, maybe it's the fear of being treated poorly that keeps you quiet about your faith in the first place. Maybe there's no one that's ever treated you bad for your faith in Jesus because no one knows about your faith in Jesus because you don't want to be treated badly for it. Would you ask God to help you believe that it's so much better to suffer with him now than to suffer without him forever? And that the blessing of resurrection life with him is going to be so much greater than any temporary feeling of fitting in here on earth. We're going to end with a song that just asks the Lord through his Holy Spirit to just help us. Because if we don't get to the end of a passage like this and, and think, Lord, I really need you, then, then we've missed it. So I'm going to pray here and I'm going to take a few moments to just be quiet and then let's ask as we sing together for the Lord's help and his power. Lord, I thank you for your word and how it exposes our hearts and it shows us who we are and it shows us who you are. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace that sought us and found us and called us and died for us and cause us to be born again and and now that same grace that prompts us and urges us and motivates us to live in a way that pleases you and and lord we know we need your power to do that we know this is what jesus died for on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so jesus receive the reward for your suffering today as your spirit empowers us to respond to you with faith and with trust and with obedience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.